0: Sure.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, a program, a movement fighting back against ageism and the idea that somehow life at an older age isn't worth as much as life at a younger age. And we do it by shining a light on ordinary people living extraordinary lives through intimate conversations with well-known celebrities and by connecting with experts, offering information and insight on ways we can all get more out of life.
2: Yeah we come at all of this bill you know through a foundation of optimism we believe that uh you know growing older is a time of passion and purpose and possibility and that pretty much gives us, we think, the ability to come at some of the kinds of discussions that others just will not have. Difficult ones about illness, disease, loneliness, and even death, but in a way uh, that educates and empowers you to be ready for pretty much any eventuality. And we're about to have one of the most important conversations that you can have. There are a number of surveys out there that show that something that people fear more than death itself is Dementia, Alzheimer's disease mainly. In fact, nearly 6 million people in this country have it, and every year that number just continues to go up and up and up. So now here's a question. Who do you think takes care of those people? The truth is, in many, many cases, it's you. It's a spouse or a family member who essentially puts their life on hold to become the caregiver, untrained and in many cases unprepared, and unexpectedly stepping into a world they know little about.
1: Yet, you know, caregiving can be one of the most painful, stressful, and complicated tasks anyone can ever take on, and we'll find out firsthand with a revealing, heartfelt interview with the widow of Glenn Campbell. Do you remember his story, Mark, what happened to him towards the end of his life? Right here on this program, she will share some intimate stories with us about the final years of the Rhinestone Cowboys' life. We'll also tell you about the Growing Boulder Caregiving Summit, which offers tools, resources, and information to help anyone learn to be a better caregiver, while also sharing tips and ideas and recommendations for how you can stay strong, refreshed, and healthy yourself, all available in the Growing Boulder Caregiving Summit.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that, that we like to do more than anything on Growing Bolder is share the stories of ordinary people that are living extraordinary lives. But, you know, lots of times we do like to talk to celebrities, Bill, because I've always thought that maybe the, the highest and best value of any celebrity is to share you know, the problems that they have in their lives, you know, allows all of us to see that uh, it, it's tough for everybody. Yeah, if, if it can happen to them,
1: it can happen to us, and sometimes looking at how they get through things
2: really opens a door for us to see how we can do it too. Amen. So what we're going to do now, folks, is share really what is a no-holds-barred look at what it's like to live with Alzheimer's, the thing that most of us fear more than anything else. And, and not just for the person who has it, but for the people around them, their friends, their co-workers, their kids, their family members, and especially the, the caregivers. Uh, we all did get such a look An amazing inside look, a candid look, uh, from country music superstar Glenn Campbell through a documentary that was released a few years ago. It's called I'll Be Me. If you haven't seen it, you should. It followed Glenn on his final tour, offering an honest and unfiltered look at Alzheimer's as it erased more and more of him.
1: And as you said before, Mark, I think it's even more powerful because, yeah, the guy was a superstar. But for a lot of his life, he really wasn't. Do you know the backstory on Glenn Campbell? I didn't before this. It, it, it's really pretty interesting. I mean, the guy was born in this tiny town in Arkansas It was dirt poor. He was one of 12 kids wow. that his parents had. His mother and father, they were sharecroppers. And it was one of those stories where they got him a guitar for five bucks when he was a, a little kid. And he taught himself how to play listening to records. And, oh, he dropped out of school at 16. And when he did that, he started taking gigs where he can get them. He moved to L.A. and got a job playing Sessions. And that's where the story starts to change because as a studio musician, he fell into being part of the Wrecking Crew, the famous group of studio musicians who played on recordings by the Monkees, the Righteous Brothers, the Beach Boys, and you know he even played on Elvis records and
2: Sinatra records. Now, I, now that, that I didn't know any of it. You know, I'm not a music guy to the extent that you are, Bill. You know, to me Glenn Campbell was, you know, I am a li- I never really understood the genius that 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 he had that people inside the music industry did forever. I mean, he was revered uh, as a song Writer. And But when he did start doing his own records, he struggled. They didn't sell. Even Gentle on My Mind, a song that became iconic in his career, really didn't do much at first. It wasn't until 1967 that he finally broke through with By the Time I Get to Phoenix. And from there on, His career pretty much shot up like a rocket. He ended up with his own television show and even had some roles on the big screen.
1: And as we are familiar with the stories of many people who rise to success, boy, did he have his share of challenges, too. And addiction was a big one. Alcoholism, man, it almost wrecked his life. It led to three broken marriages. And as you're about to hear, it nearly destroyed his fourth. And ultimately... He was faced with that diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease.
2: Yeah, Glenn and his fourth wife, Kim, made the decision to go public with their struggles. And, you know, despite the fact that he was very quickly losing touch, he went on tour one last time. And I would have to imagine, Bill, that every medical expert, every dementia expert would have advised against that because so many things can go wrong if you're not surrounded by the right kind of people. And Although the disease had progressed to the point where there was very little he could do without assistance, remarkably, when the curtain went up, so did Glenn. He turned on. He became the Glenn Campbell of old, still able to play for the most part and still remembering his songs and, for the most part. And can you imagine how terrifying it was for everyone who
1: loved yeah. him around him that maybe... Tonight would be the night he would go out and just not know where he was and not remember a note. But surprisingly, he did okay, you know. He did real well, which tells you a lot about how the mind works through this disease. And it turns out that his wife, Kim, she's a pretty amazing person, especially for being willing to share the most difficult parts of his private life. And when her good friend, who happens to be growing boulders, Laura Savini, reached out to her, well, Kim agreed to an honest and heartfelt conversation.
3: I, I had never been around an alcoholic before, so I didn't know what a what a um, you know complicated matter that was and how hard it was for Glenn to overcome it but um, it was a journey I embarked embarked on in and because I was in love, and so you do whatever's necessary to help that person when you love them, and I stayed with him through thick and thin until we finally were able to overcome that. Yeah.
4: And you worked hard. And I think one of the things you were telling me, one of the lessons you learned is that if you're in that situation with somebody who's an addict or is, is that you can't do it
3: alone. No, well, you can't, no, you can't. Uh, initially um, I brought up the fact that I thought Glenn had a drinking problem to him and tried to discuss it with him. And it just made him really angry. And, he forbid me to talk about his drinking to anyone. So I suffered in silence for a long time, even though everyone around us, you know, it was, it was painfully obvious that Glenn had a problem, but I wasn't allowed to talk about it or reach out for help. But it finally got to a point in our marriage and our relationship that um, if I didn't reach out for help, it was going to just, you know, it was getting very dangerous. Uh, I talk about it in the book that he actually pulled a gun on me one night. And so I knew at that point, you know, it was just beyond um, my control and I needed help. And so I I started reaching out to friends and family and the pastor at our church. And when I brought other people into the conversation, it it helped Glenn face the fact um, that he was in denial about what was really going on. And it, it took us about five years to overcome alcoholism. Yeah, yeah,
4: and and there was obviously some setbacks and relapses mm-hmm. on that. But uh, yeah. the thing that gets me uh, about this is that we look at him, we think of Glenn as that rhinestone cowboy. We think of him as the guy on TV that looks like a you know a Ken doll, and yeah. and you two lived this glamorous life and all this, but inside you were you were struggling, and and in no way does it diminish. Glenn's stardom for you to tell this story, but I think it's a story that helps people understand that you don't always know what somebody's dealing with you You see right. the pictures in People magazine, but uh, you know you needed that circle of people around you to help keep him the star that we saw,
3: and I think you know people knew him as the boy next door, the all american good looking exactly what you're saying um talented guy. And he was that. Yeah. That's the thing. He was that person. He was the nicest, sweetest, most generous, loving person you could imagine. But alcohol changed him. It was only when he was drinking that he became belligerent and angry. Um, I felt like there was a spiritual battle over Glenn's very life. And that if I left, that he would die. And I loved him too much to let that happen. What you did with Glenn and your family
4: and how you kept everyone together through everything uh, was really remarkable through stardom,
3: through alcoholism. And then as we move to the next part of your story. When we got that diagnosis, I went to websites like the Alzheimer's Association, very comprehensive website with anything you possibly imagine you would need to to know about Alzheimer's or or about caregiving or about the science, you know, behind what's happening with the brain. So um, education is just so important in, in dealing with any of those issues. And it, it helped a lot. But I remember one night in Nashville, and you write
4: about this as well, it was one of the last times Glenn went out in public and we were going to the country music hall of fame where they were opening an exhibit. And I remember being in the car, Kim, and uh, sitting in the backseat next to him and he was so scared to be in that car. And I was holding his hand and stroking his arm and you were driving and trying to keep him calm from the front seat. And it was really one of, it was such an awakening to me to understand just for that ride that seemed endless, Kim, it seemed like it took us days to go those eight miles because he was so uptight and it really let me see what you and your family did for five years. Five years of taking care of him at home, trying to give him that life and and to put him and to go on the road with him and be with him every moment was so
3: brave and so wonderful for his fans to see him. He was in the late stages of the disease at that point and riding in a car put him on into a full on panic attack.
4: Mm.
3: He was hyperventilating. He was crying. He was trying to take his clothes off for some reason. He just felt so. Um, caged in and constricted. And I think the motion of the car and the thing, you know, the buildings flying by as we're driving, it just sent him into a total panic.
4: Do you remember, I mean, the sort of the, the, the clincher of this story is the elevator doors open and all of a sudden he's Glenn Campbell. He's like, he turned into the Glenn Campbell of stage and screen at that moment. And that's what makes this disease so
3: difficult for a caregiver. You don't know who you're going to have. Right. There can be a trigger that sets them off in one direction. And then another trigger that's good that just brings him all back. Even in the late stages of the illness, there were moments when Glenn had a moment of lucidity and he recognized who I was, mm. and tears would fill his eyes. Mm. And one time, this is very late in the disease, he looked at me and said, please take care of me. Oh God, and It just broke my heart, you know. Mm. I hugged him, and I will always take care of you, darling. I'm here for you. Don't worry about a thing. But that was just such a, um, a shocking moment to have him, you know, go go months and months, even a year, without recognizing me. And then all mm. of a sudden he he knows who i am and you can mm-hmm. feel it you know it's 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 a very moving moment for uh-huh. those moments because they're still there they're still trapped inside that body and that mind i i remember when um
4: and in the book you talked very about how difficult the decision was to uh, finally recognize for the sake of your children and your family that was helping you th- and for yourself, because you I remember how exhausted you and the family were. I mean, it was a incredible stress to take care of him at home. And you decided to make that move for him to join a memory care community. Yeah. That was a tough decision for you,
3: but ultimately the right decision. Absolutely, it was the, the, the best thing we could have done. Um, the doctor is the one who actually pushed me that direction. He said, I can't believe you're still trying to do this at home. This just isn't safe for you. It's not safe for Glenn. A lot of people don't realize that um, many people with Alzheimer's become combative. They can't communicate anymore verbally. And so if you're doing something they don't like, they lash out. You know, they'll they'll hit you or scratch you or pull your hair. I mean, you just, it, it's... Um, there's no way for them to control that. It's an instinct, but it had become dangerous for me to take care of him at home. And I didn't know that memory care communities existed. You know, I thought about the stereotypical nursing homes, and and I was horrified by that thought. But when I started visiting memory care communities, I realized that they've got um, they're vibrant communities. You know, with with pet therapy and music therapy and mm-hmm. um, horticulture therapy, art classes. Um, Glenn loved being around people, and so many times people with Alzheimer's become isolated in their home and they don't have any socialization. And and um, and, and that happened to me too when mm-hmm. when we were at home, and I felt like Glenn was a shut-in. I was shut-in with him. Mm-hmm. I couldn't put him in the car as we just talked about and and drive him somewhere. I didn't want to take him out in public. He needed a special environment. But when we joined the community that was my community too and now we were there with other families on the same journey, experiencing the same things and, you know, we laughed together, cried together, prayed for each other and supported each other in that in that journey and it, it was a blessing. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I have to say, I have to
4: congratulate you on the book. I know you've worked really hard on it. And um, the the messages in there uh, of, of the story of the strength of you two as a couple. Uh, of course, we have the sparkle and the glam and the sequins and the fun you had, but the struggles and that you two stayed together and and shared that strength of of God and community and and the way you brought your children in to be part of that. Uh, You're really, you're a remarkable mother, wife, caregiver, friend, and I thank you for sharing so honestly. I really do.
2: Boy, it's hard to not like Kim Campbell. You know, the way, I mean, you could see and hear the love that she had for Glenn and the way she and her family, you know, really rallied around him. A very honest and open discussion with Kim about living with her husband, Glenn Campbell, through Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, Bill, one very telling point she made was, you know, was something that I think almost everybody in that situation encounters. She talked about how the last thing she ever wanted to do was to put him in a facility because it feels like failure. It feels like you're turning your back on your loved one, but ultimately it was absolutely the best thing and the right thing to do, you know, not just for her but for the family and especially for
1: Glenn. You know, that's, that's such a good point, and, and it really is the crux for a lot of family controversies because we all still have this thought in our heads that putting somebody in a quote-unquote nursing home is about the lowest, most inhumane thing you could ever do to someone. And the truth is there may be some of those left, but there are places, facilities, memory care centers that do provide this stimulation, that do allow for degrees of independence that really never existed before, the kind of care that offers social opportunities. You know, she said Glenn was still wanting to be around people, but in a safe and nurturing environment. That's what Kim was able to find for her husband, and not only did it allow her some relief, like you said, Mark, it also put him where he could get the kind of supervision and care that he really
2: needed. And this is the other thing, I think, about that story is we hear all in a, When you lose your memory, for some reason, you don't lose your memory for music. It's the one thing that people can reconnect with from decades ago. So allowing Glenn to get out there and sing his songs, even forgetting words now and then, was the greatest gift they could give him. And and you know what the toughest thing probably is for a caregiver, Mark? is the fact that everybody,
1: we all think we're doing it wrong. There is no set of rules. There is no right and wrong if you're trying to give the person joy. Treat them like the human that they are and try to provide moments for them. Don't pick at them about what they can't do, but focus on what they still can do that's the way to becoming a caregiver and that's the example that glenn and kim campbell provide for us
0: You're the last person I will
1: love. when we come back wouldn't it be great if there was a place where caregivers could find tools and resources and tips and advice well there is and we'll share some with you that can help make a big difference this is growing bolder
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
1: Florida Blue Medicare. Moving to Florida means warm weather, blue skies, and a chance to reconsider your Medicare Advantage plan. Did you know new residents may have 60 days to switch? Growing Boulder created a guide to help, available for free at growingbolder.com slash medicare. Growing Boulder TV is back for its seventh season on public television, and it is bolder than ever. All new episodes begin airing weekly on WUCF Saturday mornings at 9.30, beginning May 8th.
0: For, well,
1: here's something interesting. Depending upon which survey you read, there were as many as 53 million unpaid caregivers in the U.S. before the pandemic. And they're not all the stereotypical caregivers that you might imagine. A 60-year-old woman caring for an aging parent. There are plenty of those, but 40% of all caregivers are men and one out of four millennials is a caregiver you know rosalind carter is the one who famously said that there are only four kinds of people in the world remember this mark she said it's those who have been caregivers those who are currently caregivers those who will
2: be caregivers and those who need a caregiver i remember it well i've made a meme out of that bill but you know at growing bolder folks we've come to believe that there are really only two kinds of people in this world because we are all caregivers and we all need care. If you wear a mask, you're a caregiver. If you visit a friend, if you smile at a stranger, if you show someone how to use the Internet, if you tell somebody about Growing Bolder Radio, if you make lunch for your children or your grandchild, you are a caregiver. We believe that if we can help more of us self-identify as caregivers – we can help change the conversation around care because you can't change the culture without first changing the conversation which is why we decided to produce an online summit on the art of caregiving and we're really glad we did because it was even more needed than we realized yeah it was an unprecedented
1: study on how
2: the pandemic has impacted our mental
1: and physical health it was released and the results are stunning it's clear now that we have a mental health crisis in this country Depression and substance abuse, suicide thoughts, they've all risen dramatically in recent months, especially among young adults, among minority populations, among essential workers,
2: and caregivers. Yeah, it is amazing. It's stunning. Unpaid caregivers have been the most impacted since the pandemic began. 33% of unpaid caregivers stated that they started or increased substance abuse to cope with COVID-related stress. And, and maybe the most startling of all folks is the fact that 31% of unpaid caregivers seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days. The stress and anxiety hasn't been limited to caregivers who are caring for a loved one at home. It's been especially difficult on those who have a loved one in senior living or skilled nursing. Here's Dr. Elizabeth Malko, the chief medical officer for Florida Blue Medicare.
5: COVID has been an absolute wake-up call, hasn't it, because the alternative, the perceived alternative to caring for someone at home was to put them in a skilled nursing facility, and we have seen the disaster that that has turned into, and I am not... uh, criticizing or blaming nursing home administrators. It is the nature of the beast. You have incredibly frail people. You have them in a group environment. You have them meeting together for meals. You have visitors coming in on a regular basis. It it, it was the perfect storm uh, for having uh, really bad COVID outcomes. And so I think that, you know, what we're seeing is folks making different decisions saying, you know, I really can't leave mom. I I have to bring her home. Or, you know, mom's been in a skilled facility and she's been so isolated now because we haven't been able to visit. They haven't had the group dining. Uh, It's, you know, she's, she's like a prisoner there now. And so uh, I think a lot of people are rethinking that role. Without the home caregivers, we would be sunk. I, I cannot imagine what would happen. There is not enough resources to care for them, but we as a society, have really not provided the tools. We have not historically recognized the value that they bring. Uh, and I think that there's more need for that now than ever. I think this has been a real wake-up call uh, for the whole value of caregiving.
2: One of the many good things in, in this incredibly bad thing called the pandemic is it is a wake-up call in many different ways. We are more focused than ever on changing the narrative around care pretty much the same thing bill that growing boulder is doing with aging we're trying to do with caregiving caregiving is a critically important relationship and you know of course we're not ignoring the fact that it's tough and it's frustrating and without the support of a community that cares it can be devastating to your health and your finances but you know we all have to make that critical mind shift Uh, from focusing solely on loss and limitation in a caregiving relationship to celebrating the purpose and the passion. You know, we're not ignoring the reality. We're focusing on the possibility because, as we've learned, it can be a really beautiful, life-enriching relationship.
1: But uh, isn't the problem, Mark, now that most caregivers, you don't plan on being one. It just kind of happens overnight to you. Suddenly you're in this world that you know nothing about, that there haven't up until recently been very many resources out there to help you, and you're kind of trying to invent it for yourself. But things like this are offering support. They're offering guidance. They're offering inspiration to help instead of making it a time of dread, just making it as, as part of life. Coming up next, how do you know if your life has been well lived? We'll talk to documentary filmmaker Sky Bergman about what she found when she asked people that question. This is Growing Boulder.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
1: The Alliance for Lifetime Income. Protected income from an annuity can help cover essential expenses in retirement, giving you the freedom to live the life you want. The right financial professional can show you how. Learn more at protectedincome.org and by the center for health and well-being now open in Winter Park, Wholeness, fitness and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. This is Growing Bolder with Mark and Bill, and you know, there comes a time in all of our lives where we sit back and wonder, are we living the life that we should? Are we who we want to be? Are we doing the things we really want to do? And of course, the answer is always, I wish my job was more fun. I wish I got paid more. I wish I could quit. I wish I could travel. There's always a long list of things that any of us can think of that we'd really like to be doing.
2: Yeah, that'd be great, but no matter what our situation is, we all have obligations. We've got families to support. We've got bills to pay. We've got responsibilities of all kinds. So we end up doing this tug of war in our minds where we we try to justify what we're doing now and put everything else off until later. For a lot of us, though, sadly, tragically, later really never comes. We suffer setbacks, illnesses, our situations change, everything's so expensive, and we wonder— How did we let our dreams fall by the wayside?
1: And Mark, I guess the answer to that is that we need to decide what's really important in life. What are our priorities? What really makes a difference and what doesn't? In other words, how do we picture ourselves at 70, 80, even 90 years old? What are we doing? What are we feeling? And then ask ourselves,
2: what do we wish we would have done? What do we really regret that we didn't? Yeah, these are tough questions. And unfortunately, we just kind of when we start to think about it, we put them off to the side because we don't know the answers. It is an important thing to think about, though, even at its best, though, thinking about how we'll feel near the end of our lives is just a guess. So what do we do? Well, documentary filmmaker Sky Bergman was wondering the exact same thing. She was lucky enough to have her grandmother in her life, and she was a great example. And and a great inspiration, too. At 99 years old, she was still going to the gym, still working out, still thinking about tomorrow. So Bergman decided to uh, think about her own future and began having conversations with her grandmother about life. Their discussions were so eye-opening that it actually inspired Bergman to do her next documentary on not just her grandmother, but on others like her as well, to try to discover what kinds of things they believed make up a life well lived. Well, that's one of Growing Boulder's favorite topics, so Bill sat down with Skye to find out what she discovered.
1: Skye Bergman has always seen things a little differently, and it's helped her become an acclaimed photographer and a college professor. But she never expected what happened when she aimed her camera at a place where few want to look forward ahead in life towards advanced age but it's there she discovered a treasure it was almost she felt like a map to the secrets of a life well lived
6: i always say that everyone has a story to tell if you just take the time to listen
1: listen is what she did but what she heard was priceless
5: a life well lived is accomplishing your goals being happy
7: loving people, and being peaceful within yourself. I think what keeps me going is my own internal curiosity. People will say to me, you're so curious.
4: And I think it's important in life is taking chances and risking facing new situations, learning new skills, and not getting in a rut.
7: If you can say that I've made the world a better place because I've gone through it, then I think that's a life well lived.
5: Live one day at a time, (laughs) tomorrow comes soon enough.
1: She focused on the lives of 40 people, old in age and strangely compelling. Watching makes you wonder if you might be getting a glimpse of your own future, something Bergman first thought about with her grandmother.
6: When she was about ready to turn 100, I went back and filmed her working out at the gym. Wait, and, wait, 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 what? Uh, yeah, I know. She used to work on her exercise and lift weights. And I want to tell you, she didn't start working out until she was in her 80s. So it's never too late to start working out. She had a phrase, move it or lose it. And um, she really lived that. So I thought, well, I better film her because nobody's going to believe that at almost 100, she's still working out at the gym. And just as a throwaway comment, I said to her, Grandma, do you have some words of wisdom? and that was the beginning of this whole project.
1: A project that started Bergman down a path of unexpected twists and turns, fighting against the fallacy that increasing age means diminishing value, revealing a source of wisdom that's there for all of us to benefit from that instead we tend to isolate and ignore.
6: One of the things that I learned when I was doing the research for the film is that the last hundred years is the first time in human history that we've looked to anyone other than our elders for advice. We look at our cell phones and you think about young people, they don't necessarily have that connection of a grandparent or an elder in their life to ask questions to. And I really feel the world is suffering as a result.
1: Suffering is a recurring theme. Nearly everyone in the film talks of facing something unthinkable fighting in war, fighting for food, the sting of racism.
7: We were taken out of our homes, we had to leave everything, and we could only take what we could carry.
1: The civil rights movement.
3: I would be on the picket lines all the time.
1: And coping with separation, loss and death. The film reminds us that wounds don't always show on faces. Yes, Bergman had stumbled onto something more profound than even she realized.
6: It was not only about their words of wisdom, but also about the stories that they had and the legacy that they had and their history and how they overcame some really terrible times in their lives and still were such positive people and that those stories really needed to be told.
1: They are stories that are fascinating on their own, but even more important for what they can teach us about ourselves. Stories we can use as an invaluable guide to help direct our own difficult choices as we move forward, if we open our lives to those who came before.
6: Just because somebody's older doesn't mean that they haven't experienced the same things you've experienced. In fact, they've experienced it, and they might be able to give you some advice on how to move through life so that you don't have to make the same mistakes
3: don't yearn for things, they don't make you
5: happy.
2: You don't get lucky without working very hard for things.
5: But inevitably, there's something wonderful that will happen. Don't sweat
2: the
0: little things.
2: Marriage
0: is like a rubber band. You can only stretch it so much.
7: Work a little less. Spend a little less. Enjoy life a little more.
6: I want to live a life well lived, and so I want people that are role models for that, what can I look forward to, what should I be doing so that when I get to the end of my life, I feel like I've lived a life well lived.
1: A life well lived is what we all want. It's why your film has made such a connection.
6: You know, one of the things that I like to leave audiences with is the words of wisdom from my grandmother, which is, she always said, it's always better to be kind than right and um she lived her life just being kind to people and what a better world this would be if we were all kind to someone
4: be kind to everyone enjoy life to the limits i'm grateful for all i have and the love of god and my family that's it now Ciao.
1: be kind I-, I love that out of everything she could have said that's how a 100-year-old defined a life well lived. How interesting. And, Mark, it was, it was really fun to sit down with Skye because here she is with such a passion. Uh, for meeting these older people. And she's kept in touch with all of them in her own life since she made the film. She kept talking about how she's gone back to visit them. And there's the secret sauce that I think a lot of us miss in life. You know, a lot of us, well, you know, there's grandma and grandpa, and we've got to do our obligatory phone call to them once a week. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes when you sit to have a conversation People who have experience can be so engaging, so helpful, so interesting that they become compelling forces in your life. You don't seek out people to be uh, mentors and, and to learn from, but when it's there, you can't help but be drawn to it. And I, Personally, I think that's the magic of a life well lived is being to help others get through things that you went through that, that maybe they're going
2: through as well. When you ask somebody what life is about, you ask me what life is about, I'll tell you what I think it's about right now. Uh, you ask a 20-year-old, they'll tell you something different. You ask someone near the end of their life what it's about, the filters are off. Uh, you know, they're going to tell it to you exactly what they think, not what they hope. Uh, and that's a big difference. There was a great line
1: in that story that we listened to. Sky said that the last 100 years marks the first time humans ever looked to anyone other than our elders for advice device. What a mistake. And you know what we've replaced that with? The cell phones. You know, the kids are punching the cell phones, kids. I do it too. We're all punching our cell phones instead of spending the time to sit down face to face and listen to these stories.
2: Well, you know, previous generations, there was no such thing as assisted living or skilled nursing. I mean, those are great things and provide a lot of great value. But yes, elderly uh, relatives ended up living with two and three generations of their family. So whether they wanted to or not, Uh, They were forced to learn uh, that these older people have value, they have insight, they have wisdom, they have something to share, they have a sense of humor, and, uh, you know, it, it amazes me that we're surprised by that, and, you know, just... Thankful that there are people like Sky Berkman uh, and, and growing bolder, honestly, to pat ourselves on the back that are willing to put the time and the effort and the resources into sharing those kinds of stories. It's a great conversation that we're having now, Mark. It's the kind of conversation
1: that you just don't hear anywhere else that we all need to have because it makes you question where are we as a culture? As a society. And it's why we created a series of events called Growing Boulder's Launchpad to What's Next. It's where nationally renowned experts in aging and longevity all come to Growing Boulder to share their thoughts and their ideas and their hopes for the future. And one of them is Dr. Roger Landry. He's an amazing guy, wrote a book called Live Long, Die Short, a guide to authentic health and successful aging. And he has some interesting thoughts about where we are as a society and more important he shared with us where he believes we're headed
7: older adults were cultural treasures they were needed wanted they had a role they knew they had a role they knew they had a responsibility they were looked on for guidance and I think we are since the Industrial Revolution we have forgotten that we have marginalized our older adults thought them since they couldn't make as many widgets we will put them off to the side but I think we're beginning to see that that is human capital that we are squandering in our country as a society and as individuals and so I think we're learning that plus the second thing is that this new older adult is very savvy and they're not gonna go down the way their grandparents and great grandparents do they know that there are opportunities they know it's up to them shows like this and what you do and what I do they're learning that and they're not gonna accept it so those two things the shift at uh, that you know we 're wasting human capital, and the fact that that human capital wants to be engaged that 's explosive
2: Dr. Roger Landry, with a pretty big challenge there, folks, believing that it 's up to all of us to redefine what it means to be the new older adult. And, you know, that's what Growing Bolder is really all about. So so what does it mean to you? What do you identify with? As we age, we have an incredible opportunity, an opportunity that almost no generation in history has had to live like few others at this life stage and then to pay it forward by turning around and offering inspiration to the generations behind us.
1: Again, thought it was really interesting when Landry says human capital wants to be engaged. And I think he means we all live better lives when we have a purpose, when we're, when we're contributing. You know, we all want to make a difference. And when you lose the feeling, when you lose that th- sense that you belong, that there's a reason that you're here, it makes it difficult to get up in the morning. A- and we can do that by living the kind of life that lights a new way for others to follow. One way to start is perhaps to be your own Sky Bergman where you find older people in your world, maybe they're relatives. Maybe you just see them around. Say hi. Get to know them. Talk to them. Have real conversations. Find out their definitions of a life well lived. And from there, you can begin to form your own so that as you age, you know where you want to go, you know what you want to do, and you know what you want to be. So that's very interesting how they both tie in. And I wanted to ask you something else, Mark, because we talked about Roger Landry, he's a very interesting guy. Uh, we mentioned the book, li- What is it? Live Long live- Die
2: Short. What the heck does that mean? Uh, live Long Die Short is really what we're all trying to do. You know, I think we all would like to increase the number of years we live. Uh, But if we only increase the number of years we live, uh, and those aren't a quality number of years, then then what's the purpose? So Live Long, Die Short is about what researchers call compressed morbidity. If we can extend our life by 10 years and diminish the period of decline at the end of our life to just six months or six weeks or six days, that's a win-win. And that's what Roger talks about, how you live your life, the lifestyle choices you make, Uh, can make you live longer. That can be good. Not necessarily great, but compressing the period of decline at the end of your life is really what the game is all about. And there's so many different aspects
1: of that, too, I guess, Mark. The first thing I was thinking is just financial. You know, how how many older relatives do we know that spent the last months of their life, you know, in the hospital? I mean, it just had to be terrible, you know, back and forth. Uh, you know, not really just a shell of who they used to be has to be financially draining. I know it's mentally draining for everyone around them. And as you said, if you can square that curve, I mean, that's that's what everybody, I guess,
2: wants. Bill, you have teed me up exactly without knowing it, because that is what's on my mind. And when we return, I'll share it.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by...
2: Florida's Paradise Coast. There's a place in Florida home to wide open spaces, uncrowded white sand beaches, sparkling Gulf of Mexico waters and endless natural surroundings. Florida's Paradise Coast, Naples Marco Island and the Everglades. The perfect reward for that long overdue getaway, safe and spectacular. Farm to table restaurants, luxurious shopping, arts and culture, golf fishing and more. When only paradise will do, it's paradisecoast.com.
1: If you could compare retirement today with the retirement of your grandparents, you'd be surprised at how completely different they are. It used to be about making it to 65 and then winding down, but today it's a time to pursue new challenges, opportunities, and adventures. Hey, we're living a lot longer than they did. In fact, today there's a 25% chance that you or your spouse will live into your mid or even late 90s. And that means you may have to cover a lot more years financially. Making sure you don't outlive your savings begins with having the money to cover the essentials like mortgage, rent, food, and medical expenses. And one way to do just that is from the protected income provided by an annuity. An annuity can provide a steady income stream to help you cover those monthly expenses. And you can find out more about it from the Alliance for Lifetime Income. The Alliance is a non educational organization that believes that no American should have to face the prospect of running out of money in retirement. At protectedincome.org, they provide easy-to-understand information, tools and guides, and stories of real-life Americans who have found ways to protect their retirement, allowing them the freedom to live a bold life. More information at
0: protectedincome.org.
2: 10,000 Americans are turning 70 every day now, and with a life expectancy in this country of 79, for many of those people, it will be a decade of disease and disability. What Roger Landry talks about, 70% of those people will need long-term care but they have no way to pay for it. In fact, 55% of all households who have a head of household that's 55 years or older have zero retirement savings and no pension. So all they really have now is a small monthly Social Security check. That means the burden will fall on unpaid caregivers, and there is already this widening care gap. And what I mean by that more people who need care, and fewer people to care for them. The divorce rate is climbing among older Americans. Children are moving further from their parents. uh, And millennials are now struggling financially as well. And This is all frustrating because it is preventable. 80 cents out of every health care dollar, over $3 trillion a year, is now spent on preventable chronic illness. You know, we've talked about a pandemic. Well, here's the epidemic. The epidemic of our time is preventable chronic illness, and that inevitably leads to frail elderly. Already, we have a massive wave of frail elderly that is now threatening our health care system, and truly it threatens to bankrupt Medicare and Medicaid. You know, this, this is absolutely the fact. So, so what can we do? To put it in terms that we now understand all too well, we need to flatten the curve. We need to flatten the frail elderly curve so they don't overrun our health care system and our ability to take care of them. So how do we do that? It's not as simple as wearing a mask and social distancing. It's going to take years, and we have to start now. Job one is to change our belief system about aging. We have to believe that more is possible, that we can be vital, and active and engaged in our 70s and 80s and 90s and even our 100s because those with a positive view of aging not only live longer, they dramatically compress the period of disease and disability at the end of our lives. They don't become long-term, frail elderly. But changing our belief system isn't easy because we live in this ageist culture. Ageist messaging hits us from all direction, from the media, from our friends, from our families, even from ourselves. In fact, the most ageist people of all are older people. We've had a lifetime of exposure to this ageist messaging. And it comes from doctors who prescribe medication before lifestyle modification. It comes from physical therapists who underdose their clients when it comes to rehabilitation because they underestimate their ability to bounce back and recover. As a culture, we are creating frail elderly and no one is more responsible for that than we are ourselves. We talk about primary care health care providers all the time. Here's the truth, folks. We are all our own primary health care provider. The healthcare care paradigm moving forward is this. Lots of great specialists, great technology, great medicines, great therapies. But when it comes to the day-to-day positive lifestyle modification that is required for healthy active aging it is all about the individual it is all about you who is your primary health care provider you are period the end take responsibility we have got to stop this wave of frail elderly and it begins with each and every one of us right now no matter how old we are
1: well that was awesome mark wrapped it up tied a bow around it, and (laughs) delivered it for everybody to have. It was just great, great conversation, the kind that we all need. And our show is coming to an end. But Growing Boulder, well, that continues on. Would you
2: like some hope, inspiration, and possibility delivered right to you? Man, do we ever have it. Uh, All you have to do is subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine at growingbolder.com, which, by the way, Bill, now is the largest lifestyle magazine published in Florida in history. Uh, the last issue of our magazine went to 340,000 households here in the state of Florida. So, you know, we're really, really proud of that. And,
1: and what is that? Maybe 30 pages all filled with ads?
2: No, 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 no. It's 100 pages chock full of editorial content that will inspire and, and motivate you. So, uh, sign up for Growing Boulder magazine. Check us out on Facebook. Uh, we got a great page there. And, of course, check your local public television. Uh, stations listings to find where growing boulder tv airs near you and and never forget the gateway to all things growing boulder can be found at growing the
4: growing boulder radio show is a production of growing boulder llc all rights reserved this program was recorded at growing boulder studios in orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on npr1 itunes spotify stitcher and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.
0: Crimson flames tied through my ears. Bye.